0: Okay, so don't turn to Haggai yet, because it's hard enough to get there. We're going to go to Acts chapter 2 first. So I want to warn you of that so you're not flipping there quickly. I want to give you three, really three things before we get started. Sometimes when we jump into a passage of Scripture and we read it, there are lots of other things that kind of play in before we read the text. And we're going to get to Haggai's second message. That's the one we're going to do to us. Haggai chapter 2, the first nine verses. We're going to get to that. But before we get there, I want to tell you three things. Your notes say two, but I'm going to give you three. So the first thing that's not in your notes is I need to give you the context of where we're going. So Haggai preached this message, and the results of it or they started working on the temple. It was good. They, they started getting after building the temple, okay? And so, really, it's awesome. They're doing the work. And so, when we get to the text we're going to get to today, this is Haggai's second message. It is two months after they started working, after the first message. So, so you have to just imagine in your mind, you've been working for 60 days (laughs) on the temple. And all of a sudden, Haggai comes in and goes, I have another message for you, okay? So you have to remember that when we get to it, that the context is that. There are two more things I want you to kind of be aware of before we jump into the text. Two concepts to understand. And I'm going to take a little bit of time and explain them so that when we read the text and I go through those verses, you'll be like, (gasps) oh, Okay, that's my goal—the aha moment when you get into the text. The first thing is, there is this thing in our uh, in our in our human mindset that we romanticize the past. When I started serving at Good News Baptist Church, one of the most common things I heard was, "Man, back in the seventies, it was awesome." Okay. And this concept of romanticizing the past, every one of us, we do it. Just think about the Revolutionary War. To us in our history books, what are we? We're heroes. We're the best. We got rid of those horrible British people. Oh, there we go. See, look at that. But let me ask you this, what is in the British history books? We're traitors. Disrespectful to authority. Treason. Treason. You see? We do this. It's everywhere. So we look at things often with rose-colored glasses. And you do this when you start looking for another job. You go, man, I really would love to have a new job. This, 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 and this, and this is wrong. Man, that job is so much better. Greener pastures, oh, it's going to be so, it's going to be cake. And and we we catch ourselves all doing this. So let let me illustrate this in the Bible, okay? Oftentimes when we think about church, I want you to go to a passage that when we think about the early church, this is what we view of them. So it's Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 42 through 47. Acts 2. Verses 42 through 47. And this is how we view the early church. Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in breaking of bread and prayer. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all, as anyone had need. So continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread with house to house, They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily to those who are saved. And oftentimes when we look at the early church, we're like, man, this was awesome. The church was fellowshipping together. They were eating with one another. They had church services like every day. And that's how we view the early church. But do you realize that Sometimes we can actually take those verses and say that's the only thing that happened. But I want to tell you a little bit more of the story so that maybe we don't romanticize the early church. Uh, turn back to chapter 1, Acts 1, specifically verses 4 and 5, and then I'm going to read verses 7 and 8. It says, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my Father, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then jump to verse 7. And he said to them, It is not for you to know the time or dates of the Father who is set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. And then this is the phrase I want to point out. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and into Samaria and to the ends of the world. What he was telling them is wait, right? Wait for the Holy Spirit. We all, wait. But when that happens, when you receive the Spirit, what was their task? To go. So when you compare Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 1 in the command, were the Christians in the early church obeying? Now on one side you can say yes. They were fellowshipping, they were having church. You know, there are components to it that they were obeying. But on the other side, they never left. They stayed together. They actually created a holy huddle, you could say, where they together were ministering to one another. You could even say that maybe they ignored the Great Commission, the responsibility, the reason that the Holy Spirit was given to them. On top of all this, they probably ran out of money. If you remember, they sold all of their things. When the Holy Spirit came to Jerusalem, it was full of people from all over the place. They were not just from Jerusalem. So the church was made up of locals and foreigners. The locals shared what they could to support the foreigners sold their things like what Ananias and Sapphira did, all to support their new friends and new believers. This actually might be the reason why about 15 or 20 years later, the church at Jerusalem ran out of money and was poor and that Philippi had to take up an offering and send money to the church in Jerusalem. Why? Because they had sold their everything to support one another. On top of that... There was racism in the early church. And over and over, Jerusalem could not get this right. Peter, he would not share the gospel with a Gentile at the beginning. The Gentile widows that weren't getting their fair share, the church had to get deacons involved because they were favoring one ethnic group over another. How could they be so blind? On top of this, it continued all the way through into the New Testament. Peter was famous for his ups and downs. Three times he denied Christ. And we forget when he was in Antioch, he was actually pressured to be with the Judaizers and was called out for it. He was trying to force the gentiles to be circumcised and several other things in order for them to be a Christian. I can go farther. We can talk about Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament. We can see him as a hero of faith, church planter. Wow. But man, he was arrogant. He wouldn't accept John Mark on a short-term mission trip. Paul was like, no, he, no, he's done. Barnabas says, I'll take him. I can keep him with me. John Mark's one of the people that wrote one of the gospels. And Peter wouldn't, or Paul wouldn't accept him on his team. You go farther. And Timothy was timid. Demas it says that he loved the world more than God. Diotrephes, he was a dictator. He would not let the apostle John come visit his church because he wanted the preeminence. Paul even says in Philippians 2:19 and 20. He says that the only person that he can send to the church was Timothy because there was no one who would teach them Christ, and that's it. Most of them would teach more about their own personal interests. And not only is there a problem with with people that we see in the Bible, there are issues within churches. The reason most of the letters that are in the Bible were written were because there was a problem in a church. In Galatia, they were amazed at a different gospel. Ephesus, they they lost their love for God. It faded. Philippi, they were generous people, but there are two bitter women that would fight in the church. And that's what they were known for in their community. Timothy and Titus, when, when Paul wrote a letter to Timothy and Titus, he had to explain to them, don't let deacons be the town drunk. Don't let deacons... This, 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 this. Don't let deacons be the ones with, they're unfaithful in their marriage. And I haven't even brought up Corinth. Because there's probably three letters that were written to them. We only get two of them. And they're long. Like, that's a lot of stuff. My point is that we can romanticize the Bible. We can romanticize our church. We can romanticize a marriage. We can romanticize so much. And it's hard in our minds to realize sometimes it's not all peachy keen. And so when we get to the passage, I'm not there yet, When we get to the passage, you're going to see that they romanticized. Okay? So that's number one. Number two. The second thing I want you to kind of realize and kind of understand is there are four levels of sin and foolishness. Okay? And let me walk through this first, and then I'm going to ask for examples, okay? I want you to understand what I'm trying to say. There are four levels of sin and there are proper responses to each. For instance, there are people in the Bible or in our world where they sin or are foolish and they do so in ignorance. Okay? An example of this, his Adam and Eve, when they were in the garden, yes, God told them. And Satan appealed to them, but really in innocence and ignorance, they sinned. The result of that is that God did have consequences on their sin, right? And he helped them. He didn't just wipe them out. We're done, you're out, okay? And so one level of sin and foolishness is is people that are just ignorant, okay? (laughs) They're not sure. And the response is, There is consequence, because there's always consequence to sin, and there's a way to help, right? So that's one level. Then there's another level. You get a little deeper in sin and foolishness, and this is when there's a struggle involved. This is when an individual struggles. An example of this is David in the Bible. We often talk about David and his big sin with Bathsheba, right? If you go back the 20 chapters before that, he had been struggling with sexual sin for a long time. It didn't just happen. All the wives, all the concubines, all the things he dealt with. And so David would be an example where there's a struggle and he's wrestling with it. And that sin is, is hard for him to conquer. And there are consequences David had consequences from his sin with Bathsheba. There were. But at the same time, even though for a season David lost the kingdom, when he came back to be the the king after Absalom was taken out, his attitude was totally different. It's a beautiful section in 2 Samuel where he just realizes this is God's grace and mercy and I don't deserve it. And he was a different kind of king. That's because God saw the struggle in his life. Yes, there were consequences, but there was also help there, because it was a struggle. The third level of sin and foolishness that people experience is where they make excuses. Where they go, oh, it's nothing. Oh, this is puny. Now, A great example, there's several. I'm going to ask for some from you. But one of the great examples of this in Jesus' ministry was the Pharisees. Every time he interacted with the Pharisees, the Pharisees would say to him, the law says this. The The law, our customs, our traditions... They weren't just innocent, they weren't struggling. They were making excuses, and this is how we operate. And this is a different level of sin. It's more deeper, ingrained in your mind. And how Jesus responded to the Pharisees was rebuke and discipline every time. He did not go, oh, here's the consequence, let me help you realize it. No, he's like, knock it off, you fools. He went after him, okay? So that's the third level. Then there's a fourth level. And this is where people set up camp. Where their sin is so part of their life, they're not making excuses. This is just who we are. I'm not going to give an example of this one. I'll let you guys do that one. And in Scripture, it teaches us to just stay away and let pain work. Well, maybe I'll give you one example of this. In 2 Timothy chapter uh, 2 and 3, it talks about divisive people in the church. Now, most churches, we believe that Matthew 18 teaches how to deal with conflict and people that are sinning in the church, and that is true. But there's one exception to that. If an individual is divisive in a church, it gives us two steps. Step one is a warning. Step two is... And there are people that set up camp in their sin and are proud of it, are happy. This is something that's happened in our nation with gay pride, where they have made their choice, and we just step back. Because they're not going to listen. They're not willing to learn. They just have to do this. I have an individual in our church right now, and I'll give you an illustration of this later, where parents have continued to try to disciple their child but this child has made a choice. They're not making excuses anymore. They have set up camp, and the parents have made the choice of the kid's going to make their own choice. Okay. So I haven't scared you too much yet, right? These four steps and responses to sin are kind of what happens. And so when we jump into... Haggai 2 will see the message. So, before we do that, I want to ask a question. Give me some examples of the first one. What are examples in the Scripture where someone was ignorant and there were consequences and God helped them? Jonah, Jonah yes. What else? The hard part is the first two levels can often get uh, interchanged in people's mind because sometimes there's a struggle happens later. Is there any other examples of this? Gideon, Gideon? yep, with the fleece. Another example of uh, ignorance is James and John's mom. She went to Jesus and said, hey, I want my kids to be on the right and left. And Jesus was very nice to her and was like, you don't know what you're asking. (laughs) What else? Say it again. Yes, Saul on the road to Damascus. He really didn't know what he was doing. He didn't realize it. Okay, let me move to the next one. What are examples in the scripture where people struggled with sin and maybe a response to that? Samson you could put Samson in this category yeah Lot, Lot was another one yep Peter. say it again Peter. Solomon Peter Peter did it a couple times yeah what else so I'll move to the next one what are people in God's word that made excuses for their sin King Saul, King Saul. yep And it's actually, I think he did it a couple times, especially the end when he's like, I can do this sacrifice. I'm the king. He lost the kingdom because of it. Yeah. What else? Abraham Abraham and Sarah in Egypt. Yeah. That king, God used that king to rebuke them. Aquila and Priscilla, yeah. Yep. Yeah, you could say the nation of Israel and the whole, like, yeah, the Bible. See, there you go. This is a Sunday school answer right here. You're the, yeah, they're right there. Nation of Israel in the Old Testament over and over. Yeah. Yeah. Aaron and Miriam during that time made excuses. Generally, there's a rebuke and a discipline and a learning. Moses, when he was supposed to speak, but he hit the rock, Who's rebuked, and what was his discipline? Never can go into the promised land. What Aaron? Aaron? What happened with Aaron? Yeah? Made the, made the golden calf? Yeah. Calf while, but... It... it, it. Yeah, he did get a pass for a little while, but not very long. Adam and Eve, Eve, you could put them in this category for some of their sin. So let me move to the last one. Is Job in this category where he set up camp? Maybe. God called him a righteous man. Is there any others that happen in in the Bible where... They were set up camp, and God just let them go. Jonah. Jonah. Sodom and Gomorrah Gomorrah is a great one. Say it again. Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Pharaoh, yeah. Rich Anguilar. Rich Could could you say that the seven churches in Romans 3 and 4, they were warned, and God just let them do what? what they chose to do How about Saul? Saul, yeah, he had a couple times where he set up camp, it's bad. Prodigal. Say it again. The prodigal, the prodigal son. Samson. Yeah, Samson could be here farther in his older in his older time. So you see what I'm saying when when I there are categories of sin and, and this is just ways for us to choose what's wisest in responding to somebody. And so we use this at our church. Like, um, and I'll, We have a couple right now. Um, she left him three weeks ago. He was at work. And she left. Changed her number. Wants nothing to do with a the guy. They're not members of our church. But when we sat down to pray for them and figure out ways to help them, we had to look at him and her and which category are they in. <laughs> Who should we rebuke? Should we rebuke? Do we need to step back? And it's just a filter. It's a way to, it's a tool to help us be wise in how we respond to sin. And so those are my two things you need to know before we get to the text, okay? So let me pray, and then we'll jump into Haggai chapter 2. Father, thanks for your word and a few minutes to look at it and what it says. We know that as we approach scripture, like even Chad said today, we know it's a mirror. It's not a billy club. It's not something for us to use to destroy people. But it is your way for us to live and understand truth. And Lord, I pray that as we approach these few verses, that you would help us understand truth and see what's happening in the text. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to live godly lives that honor you in light of the truth. Thanks, in Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bible, Haggai, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. I want to read verses 1 through 9 to you. It says this, In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shilchotel, governor of Judah, Joshua, son of Josazdak, the high priest, to the remnant of the people. Ask them this. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like Nothing. But be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. For work, for I am with you, declares the Lord. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Haggai here is in his second message, remember. They have already started working on the temple, but he noticed something in their conversations. Something that they might not have realized they were doing. They were romanticizing the temple. Chances are, none of these people that were working on the temple right now had been there when the temple was destroyed 67 years earlier. They had never seen it, probably. And so they were saying things while they were building this temple. Man, the gold of Solomon's temple was so awesome. They didn't have pictures back then. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're not like Googling it and seeing how beautiful it was. But they're saying, oh, the tapestries that were in the temple, they were so magnificent. They were so awesome. So Haggai says to them, just three simple questions, okay? He goes, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? Raise your hand. Who here saw it? You can just hear him preaching this, okay? Just raise your hand. Anybody, anybody. Who here? Okay, then he asks another question. And he says, How does it look to you now? Like when you compare it, what does it look to in comparison? Does it not seem like nothing? He is prodding them and reminding them that they have rose-colored glasses. And they're really blinded because they're not judging rightly. They were comparing the stories or the things they heard of Solomon's temple. And they were looking at their stick building and going, man, this is nothing compared to what Solomon built. And the, this is huge because Haggai is actually pointing out that there is a heart problem in their conversation. That building the temple of God was not about the gold, the silver, the tapestries, the beauty of it. That this building has nothing to do with that. The whole point of them building the temple was because God needs to dwell with his people. And they were missing the whole point because they had rose colored glasses. Totally missed it. And he's reminding them that the point of this is that God is with his people. It's not about the building. And then what's beautiful is Haggai asked those three questions. Then he responds to their sin with mercy. Now he could have railed on them farther. But rather than doing that, He reminds them of truth. And he says something, again, I would say it's powerful. He says this series of phrases that says, Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, Israel. For I am with you. This is like him saying, Be strong, Zerubbabel. Our strength is not in a building with gold, silver, tapestries, and all this stuff. Our strength is in a God that is with us. He said the same thing to Joshua. Joshua, the high priest, it is not about this building that we can make sacrifices at and and all the things that you do as a high priest. Our strength is because God is right here. He wants to dwell with his people. He wants to be with us. And then he says to the nation of Israel, the exact same thing. You guys, it's not about a building. It's that God dwells with his people. The point of this building is not the grandeur of the building, the gold, the silver. And then he says at the end that I have this, I have covenanted it with you ever since Egypt. Never fear, because I am your God and you are my people. Haggai is simply asking questions to help them consider their mind. What caused Israel to get out of alignment? I'd like to have some answers. What caused Israel to get out of alignment and kind of get this way, romanticizing the past? What are some of the reasons could be? Yeah, history. This is like what they've done a long time. Yeah. What else? Looking at pagan temples and pagan Oh, yeah. They could have looked at pagan, because they traveled. They knew from Babylon what those places looked like, and it's got nothing compared to those. Yeah. What else? Make excuses. Yeah. They just make, this is just an excuse. To compare and, yeah. Then I ask you, what causes you to get out of alignment? Now, I don't want you to answer out loud. Have you thought about that? There are times in my life that I get out of alignment. And oftentimes, when we compare, because that's really what they were doing, when we compare things, we can easily get out of alignment. Comparison is one of the tools that Satan uses in our lives. When we compare between two churches, good, bad, and otherwise, do you know what happens? We pick a side, the one we think is the coolest or the best. Comparison also shows up when you compare what people have. I, I, uh, I bought a BMW. and I drive it into my church, and I'm the only person that owns a BMW. And my teenagers make fun of me because I have a BMW. They don't know that it's 14 years old and I paid $3,200 for it. (laughs) But it's it's a BMW. And before I bought it, I was like, ooh, should a pastor have a BMW? No, but it's a really good deal. (laughs) You you see, but that can cause comparison issues, comparison between kinds of, of families. On one side of my family, there are generations of people that follow Christ. On the other side of my family... Oh, I probably on a hand. I could probably on my hands count the number of people that go to church. I'm not saying that they follow Christ. And so when I go to family reunions on one side, it's joyous. But when I go on family reunions on the other side, I'm just the guy who does funerals for them, and that's it. Comparisons are powerful, and we do this often. And Israel missed the point of building the temple because it was not about a building because they were blinded by comparison. That was their blind spot, okay? That was what they were missing. That's what they didn't understand. And so my big idea, the thing I I love for you to remember or think through is that the past, meaning what we compare, the past or people and sin are actually opportunities to reflect the gospel, because both are seen in this message, how Haggai responded to their past and helping them realize the comparison. He was helping them, like build, enjoy building the house that God was going to dwell with them. I mean, that's what, the, that's how they should be building, man. As they're hammering, you know, this is where God's going to live with us, be with us. He's going to enjoy fellowship with them. That's how they should have been building the house, but they didn't. But you also see awesome mercy when Haggai did not rebuke them and destroy them because of their sin. He was patient and said, "Be strong in the Lord. Be strong." And so I have a couple applications for you. Pretty things to just encourage you to think about. And that is, we have to be careful about comparison and the past it has more power than I think we realize. When we compare the past, we compare with other people, what has happened, we just have to be careful. We often can look at the past, and and we have to remember that when we look at the past, it should actually lead us to worship, not jealousy, comparison. Like in my church, one of the things I've been trying to teach my older members, is the glory years of good news is not the 1970s. We rejoice that God did some awesome things in the 70s. But right now, I have teenagers that need Jesus that come to our church. Right now, I have young moms who need a grandma to encourage them. (laughs) I, I have this husband and wife that's struggling. I need men and women to... Just encourage them to love Christ. And the point of the past is to remind us, look at God's faithfulness and how he worked. Let's worship God because of that and do his work now. And we have to be careful about that past. We have to be careful how we respond. And, and, and along with that is when we look at the sin of others, this also can show up. Oftentimes when we see the sin of others, we judge we compare. We think we're better than them. Whoa. We have to be careful of that. We should respond, and I don't want to steal Brother Craig's message tonight because he's going to preach it, okay? He's going to do it tonight. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, that's where he's going to. But, but really how we respond to sin is, is like what that says there. Be kind to one another tenderhearted forgiving one another because Christ forgave you so much you should respond in kindness the second thing just to remind you is we need to be careful dealing with the sin of others we are all sinners and the goal is not destruction the goal is to bring them to Christ and Seth I'm going to have you put that last slide up there And when we deal with the sin of others, we do need to have like a filter where if they're ignorant, yeah, there's consequences to sin, but there's teaching, there's encouragement, there's help to get them past it. If someone's just struggling with sin, and I deal with a lot of uh, teenagers and young men who deal with pornography and issues in that realm, and yes, there's consequences, but there's help, okay? Okay? But when people move to making excuses for their sin, that's a different category. And this should be a warning to all of you. If you're making excuses for your sin, ooh, you're going to get rebuked. Like, that's how it works. And if you're camping in sin, where you don't care what people think and you're just living in it, that's when I just, like, go, whoa, God will do his work. He'll get it. And so when we respond, we just got to be careful how we respond to the past and sin because these are important things we got to just be aware of. Let me pray. Thanks, Father, for the few minutes to look into your word. Thanks for truth. Thanks for what you taught. The Israelites and their response to this message, it was awesome when you see, and you, as we look at it, the rest of it tomorrow, and Lord, I pray for each of us, we all have past that we have to be careful of, that we see them as things we can worship and thank God for. But we also have to be careful how we deal with sin and the sin of others, that we would maybe even respond within the filter the right way. Thanks for the example of Haggai and his preaching, and thanks for the time to look into your word. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.